about how the oil and gas industry can future-proof against social risk and lead the world into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the principal of Adamantine Energy. On today's show, I interviewed Dr. Michael Weber. He's the Chief Science and Technology Officer for Angie in Paris. He is also the Professor of Energy Resources and Mechanical Engineering at UT Austin. Today's show was originally recorded as a webinar, so you'll hear some questions interwoven from the audience. To learn more about these webinars, previous podcasts, and our work at Adamantine, please visit our website at energythinks.com. Now here's my conversation with Michael Weber. So with that, um, let me introduce our guest today, Mike, Michael Weber. Um, he's Chief Science and Technology Officer at, at NG in Paris, and you will be hearing um, about some of the cool things that he and they are doing, but thinking about the, the energy future. He is also a professor of energy resources and mechanical engineering at UT Austin. He's the author of the recent book, Power Trip, The Story of Energy, and that has an accompanying PBS six-part series, which I can also recommend. And you got to get your kids in the room to watch that as well. He's authored over 400 publications, so I will not list them all today. Um, he holds six patents. He has a BS and BA from UT Austin and an MS and PhD from my alma mater, Stanford. So this guy is no joke. It's my pleasure to introduce um, Michael. Um, we were honored at Adam and Teen to make a donation to your group. Uh, to support their activities. We hope our uh, audience will do the same. Tell us, Michael, um, about the Weber Energy Group. Well, first of all, Tisha, thanks for having me. We've known each other for years through different paths of intersection over the years and energy and energy policy, that kind of thing. So it's great to be here with you today and I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation. I see some names of people I rec recognize on the list of attendees like Jane Woodward and Mark Bowling and others. So it's great to see some friends on the list. The Weber Energy Group is the name of my group of students at the University of Texas at Austin. It sounds like a consulting company, but it's not. It's really just a group of students in engineering, about half mechanical engineers and half civil engineers, although we have a stray lost uh, business soul every once in a while who joins our group to do economic analysis and that kind of thing. Mostly master's and PhD students with a few PhD students and a few undergraduates. Every once in a while we have high school interns. I actually have a 17 year old working in the group now helping us on some energy analysis. So it's a group of students and postdocs looking at the future of energy and doing uh, analysis at the intersection of energy environmental issues on engineering policy and commercialization. So that's who we are. And one of the things I try to do at UT Austin is leadership development for the students, not just analytical development. I don't want them to be just good analysts I want them to be good leaders. So we do leadership development, which means we train them on how to run a meeting, how to set up an agenda, how to do public speaking, how to write for a general or lay audience instead of just the peer-reviewed scientific literature and other things that help them with their careers. And we raise money for that because that's the type of thing you cannot put in a grant to the National Science Foundation, even though it goes a long way to helping the students make an impact later in their careers. So we're always looking for people who believe in leadership development to support us. And I appreciate you giving us an opportunity to mention that. Awesome. Thank you. In the industry, we spent a lot of time lamenting the absence of, 
of a comprehensive, pragmatic education. So you're leading the way in that. So thank you for that. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Um, okay, so let's jump in. You're a person who lives in the energy world. You understand its complexities, um, its importance. Um, how are you thinking about how the energy system is evolving right now? And that can be pandemic evolution or decarbonization evolution. You can take evolution in any direction you'd like. Yeah, so we'll, let's uh, leave the COVID pandemic for maybe the next question. Or I'm sure that'll come up. We have to talk about it because that's not evolution. That feels more like revolution. It's a much more sudden change, but I will say there is an evolution. Uh, I'm at NG Dow's Chief Science and Technology Officer. For those who don't know NG, NG is a $70 billion a year company headquartered in Paris, France. We have about 170,000 employees in 70 countries. It is a massive, sprawling company that is present in many places around the world. And we're primarily a three-part company. We're an electric utility, a gas utility, and a services company. Services could be building power plants, but it's also things like running airports and hospitals and college campuses, like the facilities part of those, uh, those different uh, campuses. And so we care a lot about electricity. In fact, we're the largest independent power company in the world. The only electric companies that are larger than us in the world are state-owned. We are one-fifth state-owned by France, but we're listed. Uh, we're a private company other than that. Uh, we run the gas networks in France and Turkey and Brazil, for example. And then we do services uh, around the world. So we have about 120 gigawatts of electric generating capacity, which is a lot in these massive uh, gas systems. So we care about electricity, gas, and services. And services is really efficiency oriented, typically. Like we're doing the service to achieve a more efficient facilities operation for our customers. So we care about saving energy and we care about decarbonizing. In fact, the three trends that really drive some of our mission are, we say the three Ds, digitalization, decentralization, and decarbonization. The reason why I have this job, I'm convinced in Paris, taking leave from UT, so I'm still at UT, but on sabbatical for a leave to serve in this role in Paris, is because I would give speeches for years, I mean, maybe like eight years now, I talk about the three technology trends for energy. And I would talk about the rise of decentralization and the rise of information intensity and in energy and the decreasing energy intensity of products and goods and services. So I was saying the same speech as what NG was saying. The three trends I saw for the world were the same as the three Ds for NG of decentralization, digitalization, and decarbonization. Digitalization is really smart, more information. We have more information about the grid, more information about the appliances, more information about the meters, consumers. Consumers have more information. And that really enables a lot of efficiency, but also resiliency and other things we might care about. Decentralization happens most prominently in a place like with solar panels, with rooftop solar, but it's also diesel gensets in fuel cells and smaller um, power plants and uh, district heating and cooling for cities and college campuses and that kind of thing. Um, the decarbonization is really fuel substitution and efficiency. And I think that's the one that I should talk the most about because most people sort of get the other two. Decarbonization is happening for us simultaneously in the gas system and the power system. And this is what we live and breathe as a company. We must decarbonize. The Paris Climate Accords were in Paris. We are headquartered in Paris. This is a national ambition and it's an ambition we share. We make money selling products that emit carbon, yet we believe we should reduce carbon. So this is a fascinating situation to be in. And I have to say, we are committed to this. So how do you do this? Well, you have to decarbonize power. Let's talk about that. We've already decarbonized power 50%, 50 percent in three years. In three years, we're halfway there. I can't think of another energy company that is decarbonizing as quickly as NG. The only, I mean, that started with carbon is reducing. There are low carbon energy companies that build wind farms, but they didn't start with carbon and now they're cutting. How do we do it? By shutting down coal 
keeping our gas, keeping our nukes, building wind and solar, and some hydro in some cases. The coal plant, the largest coal plant in the world, the Hazelwood Station Australia, was just blown up last week. We blew it up. We shut it down. We paid a billion euros to shut it down early. We sold other coal assets. We're looking to convert the last few. So we got rid of as much coal as possible from our portfolio. And then the few we have, we're either shutting down or looking to convert with carbon capture or biomass or wood pellets or something like that. So that's one way to decarbonize is shut down as much coal as possible. Gas is a large part of our fleet. We have about 55 gigawatts of gas. As far as I know, we are the largest operator and owner of gas power plants in the world. So I think something like four or 5% of the world's natural gas capacity is in an NG plant. So just, that, just for a sense of scale. So we keep the gas and try to make it as efficient as possible. And then we build wind and solar and hydro or acquire those assets. We made a pledge about a year and a half ago to build nine gigawatts of renewables in three years. So just this is a tremendous uh, sort of commitment. That's about a $12 billion commitment to say we're going to build nine gigawatts in three years. We are ahead of schedule. We'll build over nine gigawatts in a little less than three years. So now the question becomes, okay, how do we accelerate and, and build even more renewables? So these are the kind of pledges we're making. And again, I can't think of another company making a bigger pledge than that when it comes to renewables. So we're decarbonizing power and it works. And the first 50% is easy. Shut down coal, keep gas and nukes, build wind and solar. The next 50% is harder. What are we gonna do about the gas facilities in particular? So that's the power side. The gas side, gas networks. We sell gas for, for industry, for chemical plants, for heating homes and businesses, uh, for transportation in some cases, all the places you expect to use gas. And we make those gas networks as tight as we can. Our leakage rate is like 0.1%. So there's talk about in America, how the gas system leaks one to 4%. And we're, in energy, we're like, why would you leak one to 4%? That's product, that's a safety concern. It's, it's uh, greenhouse gas, everything. Our system with legacy pipes, 100 year old pipes, we maintain and invest in it's about 0.1%. If you add in behind the meter stuff, about 0.15%. So we've got a, a pretty tight system. And that's the most important thing we can do. And then we invest in efficiency on the other side of the meter, wherever we can. But still it's hard because our product emits CO2. So what do we do? We have to find a way to decarbonize the gas system. And by the way, we have to decarbonize the gas system if we're going to decarbonize those gas power plants also. So this is the thing I'm most concerned about as Chief Science and Technology Officer because I run the Research and Innovation Division of NG. So it's about a thousand people in my orbit where I lead on research either directly or indirectly plus the, the startup community and that kind of thing. How are we going to decarbonize gas? And the answer is I don't know. <laughs> but here are a few ways we might do it. Efficiency, make sure you're using as little gas as possible. Electrify where you can, which might be uh, like a surface vehicle, especially if I include other fuels like petroleum and that kind of thing. Electrify surface light duty vehicle transportation, electrify maybe some types of heating and that kind of thing. But there's a lot of things that are hard to electrify. So you still need some gas. So if you use efficiency and electrification, maybe you can reduce how much gas you have to sell. Then you can use biogas. Biogas works great. It's easy to get to pipeline quality, put in the pipelines, you can leverage the assets, but there's limited scale for biogas. So then maybe you could synthesize methane using excess wind or solar to actually manufacture methane from the air, literally. You can make hydrogen and CO2, split it, put it together and make methane. Maybe that can get you 10 or 20%. But then you still have some you can't quite get to. So maybe that's gas with capture or gas with offsets. So between efficiency, electrification, biogas, synthesized gas, gas to capture, gas to offsets, we think we can get to zero carbon gas. And I think we're going to need zero carbon gas because I don't think we can get to all of our needs with electricity alone without really blowing up the costs or reliability issues of electricity. 
and I love electricity and NG loves electricity. And if you want electricity, we will sell it to you because we are an electric company, but there are certain, and we know electricity's weaknesses very well and its strengths, but we, we, we think we should sell you both and that if we sell you a combination, we can get to zero carbon faster, more cheaply in a more reliable way. And as much as I love renewables and electricity, um, you've probably been reading the news about PG&E. Electricity can spark wildfires that kill people and do damage. So electricity is not all good. It has its own risks as well. Okay, so I'll stop there. I'll say that the thing I obsess about and thing I lose sleep about and worry about is how we're going to decarbonize gas because that's the harder problem. And we can't just get rid of it because it does things that are too hard to replace by electricity. We're going to return to this idea of the different pathways to decarbonizing gas and its, and its role as an empower or accelerant, not just the problem child of, of um, ad addressing climate and decarbonization. But before we do that, I do want to pivot to this moment. Um, obviously, there's a sense of urgency because of how quickly you've made progress. Um, because I know you as someone who's been building bridges historically between those who work in the oil and gas, lead the oil and gas industry, and those who prioritize climate decarbonization. In this moment of the pandemic and economic crisis, those camps often are dividing, dividing into um, we can't worry about decarbonization now, or this is the opportunity to double down. How do you factor in cost, an economic crisis, and urgency, and where do, do the scales balance for you and for, for, the, for your company? I think this is the question of the day. This is a great question, and this is something we grapple with as individuals, as a company at NG, as countries. Will come to a different answer. Um, my younger students who are environmentalists are really worried that, uh oh, we're about to run out of money. This was our chance. We missed it. Like, uh, if you want to take climate action or do infrastructure week, we've been talking about infrastructure week now for like three and a half years, but if we want to invest trillions in infrastructure, we just spent our trillions on stimulus. Like, the money's gone. We did it for paycheck protection. And therefore, that was our chance. We're never going to do it now. And they're really kind of down about it. Like, this, this will slow down our progress. That's one line of thinking. Another line of thinking is, well, the stimulus isn't done. The economic uh, catastrophe is not over. We will have to invest more. When Obama was president, he used stimulus and infrastructure investment as a way to kickstart some things around batteries and grid investments and energy efficiency. Maybe that will happen in the US, depends on political outcomes and elections and all that kind of thing. It's happening in France. So in France right now, they have their own version of stimulus, smaller. Uh, it's smaller for a reason because France already has a social safety net. They don't have to invent one on the fly. So the idea that people would be laid off in droves is not a French concept. That's not what you do in France because uh, every human deserves some safety net unless they've really misbehaved. And so it wasn't as much of a shock to the system. Certainly revenues are down, certainly the economy slowed and restaurants were hurt. So the level of stimulus was much smaller in France and just not necessary. But for the stimulus they're doing, there are strings attached. And the French government is not afraid to attach strings. You want our money? No problem. Here's what you have to do. So here's $5 billion for Renault and Peugeot, major French auto manufacturers. But thou shalt build more EVs is the deal. Air France wants money. Okay, Air France, no problem. But you must decarbonize your aviation. And you must cancel short-haul flights for which there's an obvious alternative by rail. It's just the deal. You want our money here is this. So absolutely France is using stimulus and recovery, economic recovery, COVID as a way to accelerate climate change and transition, all that kind of thing. And this was on top of France already being aggressive about this, already having municipal level action where the mayor of Paris has already banned diesel vehicles starting in 2024 or something. Paris is hosting the Olympics and they want to have a really clean Paris at that time. 
So there's municipal and state level or federal actions happening already before COVID and now in response to COVID. And that implies to me there'll be some acceleration of transition in certain parts of the country. In the US, I don't know what we're gonna do, we'll see. So that's also happening as an overlay with consumer preference, what do consumers want? And what do young consumers want? And what is COVID mean for this? And I think a lot of people just kind of want a job. They're 20 million employed. This is, this is a catastrophe, right? We need to get people working. We need to kickstart the economy. But there's also this experiment we did in real time where all of a sudden we reduced our emissions dramatically, almost overnight, and cleaned up air quality in New York and Austin and France and all these places. And that was either a reminder of the way the air quality had been many decades ago or a preview of the future to come when we have lower emissions. It was a snapshot where people were like, holy cow, the air is really clear. I like that. In Venice, Italy, the water was clear. The canals were flowing with clear water for the first time in a while. And I think this might kickstart an environmental test. It's like, well, that's really cool. I like the clean air and water. How do we get that but without the economic devastation? So this might create more political support for stricter environmental regulation like that. Anyway, so all these things say we might slow down. We might accelerate. I don't really know. We'll see how it breaks out. But I think that we should probably bet on accelerating transition and more investment because we have to invest in something to restart the economy and people are probably in demand. It's whatever's cleaner. And by the way, we've been through this before. We had the pandemic in 1918 and 19. We had uh, the depression and the stock market collapse in the 20s and 30s uh, with the war around then. And we're having stock market collapse and pandemic. One of the ways we want to get out of it was through massive investment in large-scale renewable energy with hydroelectric and Tennessee Valley Authority and up in the Pacific Northwest and that kind of thing. So we were looking at, we looked then at large-scale clean power for economic development. We could do the same thing again. So we'll see. I, so everything's on the table. We haven't figured out as a society our priorities. In the U.S., we don't even talk about it, I would say, in many ways, except in forums like what you're hosting. At the federal level, it's missing level of conversation. So we'll see. Uh, my guess is other countries will be a little more organized than the U.S. So that's my long way of saying I don't know <laughs> what we're going to do. But there's some fear. That was our chance. We ran out of money or now we'll really accelerate. I don't know what's going to happen. I do think the signs are pointing more toward acceleration after this pause that we're in right now. So I, 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 I agree with you. Um, one of the things you and I have always had in common, um, but is becoming a, a, a rarer, lonely place at the moment, is our belief that uh, the climate transition or the energy transition decarbonization happens faster with the participation and leadership of the oil and gas industry. And I just want to, um, for our listeners, um, let them know that you wrote uh, a piece called The Oil Industry is Part of the Solution in Mechanical Engineering in February. So you're out there very publicly uh, articulating this case. Can you talk about what does that require of oil and gas leaders? So there, there has to be uh, people on the other side of the table willing to meet the industry there. I also spent a fair amount of time on that. But oil and gas industry leaders have to step out um, in, in a way that we've really only seen from the international oil and gas majors. Um, what do you think about that? I, this is great. Yeah, so thanks for referencing that article. Yeah, I've been vocal and public about this for years that I think oil and gas has a role to play, not only a helpful role, but a critical role, and that everything is better if we're all rowing in the same boat in the same direction. I mean, if we're working against each other, it just slows everything down, it's bad for everybody. Um, but it's kind of a strange position because I'm a climate hawk. 
think climate change is the challenge of the century. And I believe in these century challenges. In the 1800s, the challenge was colonialism and slavery. In the 1900s, it was fascism. And now in the 21st century, it's really climate change. Although maybe fascism is coming back. We have to deal with that as well. I thought we were done, but we have to deal with climate change. And by the way, democracy and tech and climate change might go hand in hand. Freedom and environmental cleanup tend to go hand in hand. So I think this is the problem of the century we need to solve. So I'm a climate hawk, but I'm a pro-gas, pro-nuclear, pro-oil and gas, pro-market climate hawk. And I feel like this is a lonely place to be, actually. Uh, so I find myself in a lot of arguments with people I think are on my side, but they don't like one of the things. They don't like gas or oil and gas companies or nuclear or whatever. They don't like one of the things I just said. But I think uh, everyone has a role to play. And I think it's an all-hands-on-deck moment. I mean, this is a time when we all need to get on board and help. And the boat goes faster if we all row together and in the same direction. And this is where I think there's a split in the environmental community. There's an important part of the environmental community that is punitive, that wants to punish the bad actors. And in the environmental community, the coal companies especially, but oil and gas companies also are bad actors because their product is part of the problem. And the companies themselves have delayed action on climate change. Therefore, they're bad actors and they should be punished. They're not invited to be part of the solution in the future. That's one important um, strain of thought in the environmental community. And it's fought with passion and has analysis and it's got decades of evidence and this kind of thing. And then there's another part of the environmental community that I'm in, and I'm a, a very avid environmentalist, which is we all need to clean up the environment. And I want oil and gas companies to be part of the solution. I want coal companies to be part of it as well. And it's less about who gets to be part of it or not as much as we need everybody, but we all have a role to play, let's play our role. And so I think this is important because if you tell the oil and gas industry that you cannot be part of the solution, that we have a vision for the future and our vision for the future does not include you, then what are you gonna do? You're gonna say, well, I'm gonna fight that vision of the future because who doesn't wanna be part of the future? But if you say I have a vision of the future and it includes you and here are like the 15 ways I see you could play a critical role, not just a, a helpful role, but a critical role, then that's one that I think people can get more on board with. And, and I think there's a role for everyone. Even coal has a role. It can't be coal the way we did it in the 70s. It has to be some cleaner form of coal the way it's mined or used or burned. But there are mine mouth coal plants with carbon capture that could be economic and we need it for metallurgical reasons anyway, for steel and that kind of thing. So there's a role for everybody. And I think that's the, the philosophical underpinning of what I believe, which is like, okay, let's find a place for everybody in the future. Did oil and gas sell a product that polluted? Sure. Did they do it because they're evil? Probably not. It's because we demanded that they sell it to us because we really wanted it. Did oil and gas companies slow down action on climate change? Sure. Uh, you know, the best actors ignored it and the worst actors actually actively delayed us. So there's a lot of bad actors, coal the same. But the, some of that was because we couldn't define a future that included everybody. But let's think about how oil and gas plays a role in the future. I believe gas has a role in the future. Well, who's got experience at handling, moving, storing, extracting, producing, managing, purifying, liquefying gas? The oil and gas industry. Who's got experience capturing CO2 and sequestering it below ground? The oil and gas industry. Who has got the drilling expertise to do advanced geothermal? Advanced geothermal is 24 seven baseload power. It's not variable the way the wind and solar is. Well, the oil and gas industry. I mean, the oil and gas industry has drilled 4 million holes in the earth over the last 100 years. A million of those are in Texas, by the way. 4 million holes in the ground. And when you're an oil and gas company, you look for oil and gas, you find hot water by accident. Well, hot water is really useful for geothermal. So what if instead you look for hot water and you got oil and gas by accident? Well, then the tax credits are different, by the way. But you get baseload um, low carbon power plus a product that's useful as a byproduct. So we could really use oil and gas for advanced geothermal. Um, we might want to ship or move biofuels. This uses some of the same things. We might want to go to offshore wind. Well, who's got the offshore industry that's oil and gas? Where are the companies where you might have 
40,000 engineers. Well, that's going to be an oil and gas company. So the capability and the geoscientists for the caverns for storing, I mean, there's so many skills that oil and gas has. This is critical to the future. And it's going to be hard for wind and solar companies to hire the one and a half million people we need all of a sudden to do this. So we need oil and gas to be part of the solution. I think uh, oil and gas has been slow to adopt the initiative. And that makes sense, right? You have people saying your product is bad. It's not part of the future. You'll be slow to move to that. But I would say that the product does have a role. There's some things the product does that other things cannot replace. And those skill sets certainly are valuable. We need the skill sets. Here's a way we can all make a profit rowing the boat in the same direction in the future. So that's what I argue. And that's what I believe in my heart of hearts. It's not a popular position. It's a weird position to be in, in all honesty. And I think we need more vocal leadership from oil and gas. There have been some, I would say like Occidental has been really out front about carbon engineering and carbon capture. They happen to have a lot of fields that could use CO2 for enhanced oil recovery. So um, they're a good partner for that. ExxonMobil has some key patents on carbon capture and purifying, getting CO2 out of biogas and this kind of thing. Um, Shell has been very active. The European majors have been very active on this. The American mid-majors and independents have been less vocal and less active, I would say. Uh, I would say companies that are active in many countries are more vocal about climate change because if you're in ExxonMobil and you're in 70 countries, however many countries are in, every country cares about climate change except the United States. And so the customers are demanding that. But if you're only active in the United States, your customers might not care and your government might not care. So you, get, you see a real difference between the domestics and the internationals. So that's my long way of saying there's a lot of important roles for oil and gas, and I, and I think we need it. And I really think it'll go better for us if we don't row in circles, but we all row in the same direction together. That, that's great. And I want to dig into two of the examples you've given, or one example you've given, and one is a question from the audience, um, and get your thoughts about, about them. The first is renewable natural gas or biogas is, is having quite a fashionable moment regionally within the U.S. So certain areas um, that are that our customers are demanding climate. This uh, hits the utilities first, and then the request will trickle upstream. Um, but curious about your thoughts about uh, how far along you you mentioned its limitations in terms of scalability. There's also certainly limitations in terms of cost. So RNG, I want to hear more about your thinking on that. And the second is um, differentiated gas or gas sold at a premium that has lower emissions. We're starting to see a movement in the U.S. toward uh, perhaps toward a critical mass discussions about that. Certainly the last, um, in the pandemic period, there's been more uh, talk about it than there has been um, prior. So I'd be curious if you're seeing something like that developing, um, particularly with the European Union's uh, gas import guidelines or so certified gas RNG. What are your thoughts about that? So I'll, I'll talk about biogas first. And so RNG, in my mind, renewable natural gas includes biogas or biomethane is one form, but also SNG synthesized natural gas is another. And I'll talk about both. And then certification is a great topic. Let's, let's talk about that. So biogas, it works. It's mature. The technologies exist. There's small scale, large scale liquefaction, pipeline, scrubbing, purification, everything exists. Prices can come down as the market grows. That will happen, but it's already there. The problem of biogas is really one of scale. And even the problem of scale varies from a different places around the world. In a location like the Middle East, where there's not much organic matter, there's not much vegetation, there's only like sewage from humans, that's about it. There's really not much biogas. It's hard to satisfy the Middle East needs for gas with um, organic matter that decomposes. And the way you get biogas is 
you need organic matter that decomposes anaerobically, decomposes without the presence of oxygen. And then the decomposition goes, the carbon goes to methane, CH4. If the decomposition happens in the presence of oxygen, like if a tree falls in the forest and it decomposes out over the atmosphere, it forms CO2 because there's oxygen that oxidizes it there, see? But if the oxygen is not present, then it goes to CH4. So you need anaerobic decomposition of organic matter, which means you need to have organic matter. In the Middle East, there's just not enough, in the desert, there's not enough organic matter. In a small village in Germany, there's an example, I can't remember the name of the village. It's a small farming town. I want to say there's like five or 10,000 people that live in the village and they have a lot more cows than people. They have a lot of farm waste, agricultural waste, as well as animal waste like manure. And so they have a lot of organic matter. They can actually supply their year's gas needs 100% of biogas. So in a particular type of organic rich environment with small population and low needs, there's no industrial load and that kind of thing you can satisfy 100% of your need with biogas. In a place like the Middle East, it's probably a fraction of 1%. Typical numbers are like five to 15%, depending on where you are. Okay, that's enough to matter. It's not enough to solve the problem, but it's enough to matter. And so it just depends on collecting it, uh, creating the incentives, farmers collect it and sell it, rather than just having to emit into the atmosphere for manure lagoons. The same thing with landfill gas, the same thing with uh, sewage at the wastewater treatment plants. Let's come up with an incentive to capture it. That incentive could look a lot like a carbon price or just uh, loan programs to get the equipment sold to capture it. So biogas is a great solution. It's just limited in scale. Synthesize natural gas. Using excess electricity from wind or solar or whatever you have, you have free electrons and they're clean electrons. You can split water to make hydrogen. You can split CO2 from the atmosphere to make carbon. And once you have hydrogen and carbon, you can make methane. So you can synthesize methane and make it be green methane. It emits CO2 when it burns. It, uh, it can leak and see so a fugitive emissions you have to worry about. But it was made from CO2 from the atmosphere. And so on life cycle, it's zero carbon or pretty low. And this is an option as well, especially as we overbuild wind and solar. We overbuild for reliability reasons. There's a lot of curtailment. We could use the curtailment to make methane. And then we can leverage existing methane assets like pipeline, storage caverns, pumps, compressors, and power plants, that kind of thing. So that's an opportunity. That is unlimited in scale, but it is costly and inefficient. So biomethane doesn't have, and even the cost issues for biomethane aren't that big a deal. The prices come down. It's a scale issue. For synthesize, not a scale issue. It's an efficiency and cost issue. So those are two good opportunities. And by the way, we're doing research on that at Engie on both aggressively. We already have customers for biogas. We're already making um, gas from wind and this kind of thing. And there are other things you can make. You can make just hydrogen, methanol, ammonia, formic acid. There are other hydrogen carriers. Methane is a particularly convenient thing to make because we know how to handle it. So that's the good news. The certification is really fascinating because in other parts of the world, we pay more for things that are certified. We pay more for certified organic vegetables. In the world of beef, we pay more for USDA certified prime or Angus beef or organic beef. There's certifications and the USDA sets up certification standards that we can use to clarify that these meats are of different quality and therefore they charge a premium for the higher quality meats. And I am actually uh, an investor and an advisor to a startup by a former student of mine making low carbon beef at a ranch in Oklahoma, developing certification schemes for this. If you can certify it's low carbon beef, people will pay a premium for that. Why can't we do the same thing for gas? The certification for gas has always been whether it's pipeline quality energy or not. It's always around energy content and maybe like the liquids or the richness or is it sour gas? And I mean, so there's other things but the certification has really been around the carbon content. And I don't see why it can't be. And I, I think I saw Paula Gant's name on the list, uh, GTI or some agency could be the certification agency. And it's just paid a whatever, you know, 0.1% of all the gas that certifies and the higher certified gas, it's lower carbon could sell for a premium. 
And there are customers who will pay for that. When Austin, Texas launched its Green Power Choice program, its Green Choice program in around 2005, 2008, this is for renewable power, they said, dear Austin customers, you have the opportunity to pay more for green power and we're certified as green power. And Austinite, it's Austin, so it's not normal. Austin is weird as we like to advertise, but people signed up, they sold out. So they did another batch, it sold out. Then they did a third batch and it sold out. And it turns out it wasn't just the hippies in Austin, it was Dell and other companies that wanted a hedge against volatile prices elsewhere in the energy mix from gas and elsewhere. They wanted the PR, they wanted to make their employees happy. And so why can't we do certified gas, green choice gas, just like we have certified green choice power. And they discovered over time that actually renewables over time, the low carbon forms energy could compete with the others. I think gas would find the same. There's a customer for it. And I would say that if you look at your big industrial customers for gas, like the chemical companies, Total or ExxonMobil, whoever it is, their customers are demanding that they go low carbon and their shareholders are suing and demanding that they would love to have a low carbon form of gas. And so that certification would be helpful for them. All right, let's, let's um, pivot to hydrogen because we have a very technical question about hydrogen, which I am not going to dive into. Um, but I will say, can you talk about green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, and then um, why aren't we seeing more methane pyrolysis, if I said that correctly? Yeah, so hydrogen's exciting. So hydrogen is a great idea. It was posed in the 1800s as a solution. Jules Verne even wrote about it with a trip to the moon in his book in the 1800s about using hydrogen fuel cells and that kind of thing. So the idea of hydrogen as a master fuel has been around for a while. It's, it's not really a new idea. It's great. For, I mean, if you have hydrogen, you can make chemicals, you can make other fuels, you can make plastic, you can make whatever you want. Hydrogen is just such a great building block. It's just hard to produce, move, and store. It's easy to use but hard to get because hydrogen doesn't exist in natural abundance in pure form. Although I can come back and correct that. There are places where the earth leaks hydrogen, like from the Mid-Atlantic Ridge and other places. And there's a lot more to learn on that. And NG's a world leader on that. I'm happy to talk about natural hydrogen. But for the most part, our experience from hydrogen is it's bound up in water or methane or hydrocarbons of some sort. And we have to spend energy to liberate the hydrogen from its source. We would use electricity and electrolysis to liberate the hydrogen from water which has been known for a long time. Uh, you can do that with electricity. Uh, that is not super efficient. It's got like a 60 to 80% efficiency, depending on how you do it. You can also liberate the hydrogen from hydrocarbon. The most natural way to do that is with methane, with C-methane reforming, where you liberate the hydrogen from the methane. And we do that a lot already for the chemicals industry to make a variety of things, but in particular to make ammonia. Ammonia is very valuable as a fertilizer. Ammonia is the second most manufactured chemical in the world after polyethylenes for plastic. So hydrogen is already made from methane and it's a classic way to do it. So it could be pyrolysis of methane or C-methane reforming. There's a variety of ways to get the hydrogen free from it. Blue hydrogen is where you use methane to make hydrogen, but you have carbon capture. Because right now the process of cracking the methane, reforming the methane emits CO2. So that hydrogen's clean, but the process is not. But that process with carbon capture is cleaner than without, that's called blue hydrogen. And then green hydrogen is where you use renewable electricity to make the hydrogen, which is with the electricity from wind or solar or geothermal or something to do electrolysis. Green hydrogen works. It's essentially limited in scale, but as again, as I said, it's got a cost and efficiency problem. That's the research question for me. Then how do we drive down the cost and improve the efficiency? I think hydrogen's got a big future. 
it's plagued a little bit by the fusion problem where fusion's 50 years away and has been for 60 years. And so hydrogen's been three decades away and has been for like 150 years. Yet somehow it feels closer now because bigger companies like NG and a lot of Japanese companies and others are investing a lot in hydrogen. So the investments are trying to flow there because there's a real market in certain places in transportation, for forklifts, for chemicals, that kind of thing. So I think hydrogen's gonna get more exciting I'm not sure we'll be piping large volumes of hydrogen around. Hydrogen likes to leak. It's a very light molecule, so you have to move large volumes of it to get the same energy. At NG, we set the world record. We blended 20% hydrogen by volume with our natural gas pipeline in Dunkirk about nine months ago. It was incredible. And other groups have now repeated that experiment in England and elsewhere. So 20% hydrogen using the same pipes and pumps and compressors and even burner tips didn't have to be replaced at homes. That 20% hydrogen by volume was 6% by energy. Hydrogen has a lot less energy per unit volume than methane. This is one of the advantages of methane is it's very energy dense. So maybe hydrogen would be more useful as a way to make methane than to replace the methane or something. We're sorting that out. But uh, hydrogen has a future, has a lot of uses. We just have to figure out how to get it, move it, and store it. After that, it's easy. Uh, other than um, the ones we just talked about, is there another innovation or role for natural gas toward a decarbonized energy world that you're excited about that we should touch? The, the most obvious one is natural gas beating up on coal in the markets. I mean, I think natural gas displacing coal is the most obvious near-term term win for everybody. And, and this has been the US path and it's really been incredible because now the power sector is cleaner than the transportation sector in net on greenhouse gas emissions. And it's really been partly a gas story and a wind story, all solar is part of that story as well. So gas is a big part of the story for turning off coal. And that thing, that whole story needs to be repeated in India, Indonesia, Saudi, well, Saudi Arabia used gas already, uh, China. There's other places where the U.S. story can really be magnified. I think that's a great story. I kind of laugh because in the United States, we haven't even decided that climate change is a problem. We don't have consensus that climate change is a problem, yet we are decarbonizing. In France, they've decided that climate change is a problem, and so is Germany, yet they are not decarbonizing. France, partly because they decarbonized in the 70s and the power sector was nuclear, and they're not sure what to do with transportation today. In Germany, for other reasons, it's actually level because of shutting down nukes. So in the US, we do the right thing sometimes, even when we can't decide that we should do the right thing or that the right thing is even the right thing, which is kind of a hilarious reflection of our own personality disorder as a nation. But gas has been a big part of the story. That's the obvious win. We got to use uh, natural gas to beat up on coal, at least beat up on old, dirty coal. A new clean coal is fine, but the, the old stuff from the 70s really doesn't belong in a modern economy. What's the next thing after that? I think gas needs to lead the way on cleaner production for chemicals, backing up renewables. Um, we need to use gas in cleaner ways. And I think gas with carbon capture is something we have to figure out. And this open question, will carbon capture ever be economic? It doesn't look economic. It doesn't look close to economic today, at least not without a carbon pricing regime. But what is its future? And that's what I think about a lot. I don't have an answer for you. We're still dabbling with it. That's great. And, and uh, I'd like to build off a thought you uh, made about displacing coal with natural gas, which is so important for developing economies. And you've recently joined as an advisor of the Energy for Growth Hub, and I sit on their board. So everyone interested in energy for jobs and developing economies should check out that spectacular organization. Yeah, I, so Todd Moss and Energy for Growth is great. We're, uh, so Energy's happy to sponsor and be affiliated with what they're doing. Access to energy is the other problem. In the West, we think about decarbonization, but in Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia, it's about energy access. And it's the same problem. Coal is a solid fuel. 
in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, they're using straw and wood and cow dung, other solid fuels, and the gaseous and liquid fuels are cleaner than the solid fuels. So getting gas or propane and gas stoves or propane stoves to displace cow dung is a big advance because there's like 4 million women and children die prematurely every year from indoor air quality problems, not the outdoor air quality problems, indoor air quality problems. So there's millions of lives at stake every year that would be uh, benefited if we could get cleaner solutions to them. Awesome. So um, more of a philosophical question for you at this point, and it's one of the hardest questions I get a lot and everyone knows I have a strong opinion about it. So we'll get yours, which is should oil and gas companies, should gas utilities make net zero commitments when there's not a clear pathway? Is there a value to that or is it, um, is it nonsense caving to public pressure? What do you think? It depends where you're on the US. The answer is probably uh, it's good PR and good for some customers, but it doesn't make sense to make your life more expensive if your competitors aren't doing the same. It's, it's a difficult situation. In France, it would, but France has a centralized gas transmission company, NG, and a, a gas distribution company. So if you have sort of a state owned monopoly, it's, it's just a different situation. I think what would be better is not for gas utilities to pledge net zero, but for gas utilities to work together to require net zero by policy, to make it the rule and to, to make efficiency the goal. And I think net zero is important because it's the right thing to do. I, I think this, doing an experiment over 150 years with the atmosphere when you don't know the outcomes is not a great idea. We shouldn't just like put a bunch of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and hope for the best. We should really take that more seriously. But it's hard for one gas company to say, okay, we'll be net zero unless it's a, a monopoly utility service area when then they could. But if you're in competitive markets in some ways, that, that's hard. And so it'd be better for the voice to be heard that the gas industry can survive this, is okay with it and supports it. And let's put a price on carbon. Let's make it more of a mandate or requirement. And I'm not a mandate or requirement guy. I'm a pro markets guy, but I think you need policy clarity and the policy clarity should be the goal, the direction and the pricing scheme. And then let industry innovate to comply with the targets. So you need, the policy to set the rules, and then the competitors to abide by the rules to compete for market share within that. But if you don't have rules, or if the rules are outdated or unclear, then that creates really confusing market signals. It's hard to invest in the cleaner, lower carbon stuff if it just drives up your costs. And then your regulators won't let you because they'll say, well, why are you doing things more expensive? Regulators want lower prices. So there's a regulator problem in many places because there's a policy problem. So I would say having active voice from the industry on a policy is a precursor for those other things. Awesome. And one bonus uh, add-on question from the audience. Uh, what do you think about industry voluntary initiatives like the oil and gas climate initiative? Is that that kind of investment in R&D compelling? And it, do you expect it to move the needle? I hope it does because I, I think it is good and I think it will move the needle. Um, I would love to see, uh, Carol say this, but Oil and gas industry seems serious around flaring, fugitive emissions, leaks, at least the large multinationals. But in Texas, we still see a lot of companies fighting things as simple as flaring. Flaring is a disaster. There's no way flaring is good except for a few very specific safety needs or short-term needs right after you're bringing a well in. But you should not have a well flare for 180 days straight or years straight as we have in Texas. This is preposterous. And so flaring has to be solved and it is solvable. There are so many ways to solve it. You can build more pipelines, you can capture it and use it for power, you can pack, capture it, use it for chemicals, you can capture it and use it for water treatment. And so we shouldn't do that. That's flaring is clearly the wrong thing to do. It's better than venting, but it's not better than what we know the best available technologies are. And so these initiatives to push for reduction that are great, but it's not like the industry speaks with one voice. 
the industry speaks in many voices. The independents have a different voice than the multinationals. And the, these initiatives are mostly the multinationals who are worried about the fate of gas in Europe. Right now, gas is getting legislative out of existence in the place like the Netherlands. The Netherlands banned gas hookups for new builds. The Netherlands, the home of Shell, said no more gas. And this is a country that needs gas for heating. They backed off on that a little bit. So gas can get legislative out of existence if it's not part a proactive part of the policy conversation. And ODCI is a useful part of that, but I think it's not enough. Good step in the right direction, not enough. Good. So I'm going to move into our rapid fire questions where we learn a little bit about you. So um, you have relocated back from Austin to Paris. Any um, uh, quirky isolation management tips? Because I imagine you're still having to proceed cautiously. What's working Uh, for you? So France, first of all, responded swiftly and seriously to the pandemic. They have it under control. They're down to 500 cases a day compared to the U.S., which is 20,000. The EU as a whole is a a little bit larger population, about 500 million compared to the U.S., 330 million. And the EU as a whole is having a much better time with the pandemic. Uh, A lot of it... Uh, was because they went to masks and social distancing immediately and seriously, and people complied, and it worked. Uh, it's kind of amazing when you have data and science back what you're doing. In the U.S., we argue, we still argue politically over whether masks are important, right? And it's become a weird thing where Democrats believe in masks, but Republicans don't or something. I think this is bizarre, right? So somehow we politicize something as simple as, as masks and social distancing. And that's the kind of argument you don't have in other countries. So France is taking it seriously. It's working. It got out of control early in March. They took it seriously. They got it under control. And now they're opening up actually this week. You can go to restaurants. If you're outside, you don't need to wear a mask. But if you're in a store, please wear a mask and people wear a mask. You must wear a mask on transit, that kind of thing. Um, I will say there are quirky things about living in France anyway, though. Uh, We often think of France as an environmental leader. They are an environmental leader in many ways. If you think of like fuel economy or building efficiency standards and that kind of thing. But France is a laggard in a few things environmentally compared to the U.S., uh, especially on air quality, like outdoor air quality. The way France got to fuel economy um, standards was with diesel. In the United States, we use clean reformulated gasoline. And our gasoline tailpipes are much cleaner than the diesel tailpipes. So the air quality is worse outdoors in many places like in Paris. And that's one reason why they're banning diesels because it's damaging the monuments, the air pollution. The indoor air quality is worse in France because a third of the adult population of France smokes cigarettes, a third. In the United States, it's like one-sixth, so we have half as many smokers in the U.S. In the U.S., you can't smoke in restaurants or in buildings, that kind of thing. But France just feels, feels like there's smoke everywhere. And so the indoor air quality is worse. And then the third thing that really blew me away about France environmentally is they don't pick up after their dogs. As you walk around, there's dog poop all over the sidewalks and stuff. And this is something like in New York City with Mayor Ed Coach, he, he really fought for yeah, pooper scoopers and this kind of thing, clean up after your dogs in the U.S. So we had that battle 40 years ago. And now you can actually get fined if you, in the U.S. if you don't clean up after your dog and they tracked the DNA back to your dog and we'll send you a ticket in the mail. In France, they don't do that. So it just goes to show that every country has some leadership and some laggardship and France is no exception. That's amazing. Uh, what are you reading right now? Anything you want to share? I just finished American Moonshot by Douglas Brinkley about the space race in the 60s, which is fantastic. Uh, I'm now reading a book called Topsy. Topsy is by Michael Daly. It's about a large elephant that was in the Barnum Bailey Circus. And Topsy was the elephant that was executed in an electric chair invented by Thomas Edison. So Thomas Edison was in a big war with Westinghouse over whether the grid would be AC or DC. And uh, and Edison had the patents for DC current and wanted a DC grid. And Westinghouse had the patents for AC current and wanted an AC grid. AC, what we ended up going with, because it's better for a variety of reasons, although DC is making a comeback. 
And Edison wanted to demonstrate how dangerous AC current was. So he invented the electric chair, the same electric chair that was used for executions for many decades. And he demonstrated the electric chair with Topsy the elephant to kill her to show that Westinghouse's uh, invention was dangerous and should not be used. And so it's simultaneously a book about how crazily we taught, we treated animals. It makes you depressed about it, uh, humans, but impressed by elephants, but it also is a history of the electric grid, which is fascinating. So I'm reading that book now, I'll probably wrap it up in the next couple of days. And then my next book might be history of Earl Campbell. Some of you might remember a great football player from the university of Texas. So that's kind of my reading list these days. At least quite, a quirk, quite a quirky reading list. And then, yeah. um, Final rapid fire question for you. What parts of isolation are you going to carry forward in your life, even as we at some point return to normal? I, I love it. And I think you know, I'm, uh, another book I'm listening to is the one on Alexander Hamilton, the same book that's the basis for the rap musical, the hip hop musical. And this book keeps talking about the yellow fever pandemics in Philadelphia during the Continental Congress and other things. And they talked about how people wouldn't shake hands and and wouldn't hug and would walk uh, you know, 10 feet apart. And that'll end within a year. So I think a lot of social distancing will end. But there's one thing that social distancing I hope will keep, which is maybe particular to France. But in France, at the start of every meeting, there's like 10 minutes of kissing. Everyone has to go around kissing everyone around the table. And they kiss twice, once on the left, once on the right cheek. It's it called the beast, not a kiss. There's so much kissing. And the whole thing makes me feel so uncomfortable. It's so bizarre to me to kiss people who work for me or to work or kiss people I don't really know. It's just the whole thing makes you uncomfortable. And then I don't know what cheek to go to. And it just feels like a great way to spread germs. That has ended. People are not kissing in France right now. And if that ends forever, I'm okay with that. So let me go. The so, end of the beast. <laughs> the end of the beast. Let's hope uh, the beast if in if in a. So we'll, we'll hope. We'll see. Anyway, I make my life much more comfortable at work if I didn't have to kiss everybody. <laughs> well, that's a perfect note to end on. Um, Michael, thank you so much. It's so fun to talk to an industry ally, an industry supporter, uh, someone who shares the vision of oil and gas and natural gas as an important part of a decarbonized energy future. Thanks for making time for us today. It's been a pleasure having you. My pleasure as always. It's always good to talk to you and it's good to catch up. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to Michael Weber for taking the time to share his insights with us. I absolutely loved this conversation and several of our original audience members uh, and I've had to re-listen because there was so much compact information. I want to know what you think about what you've heard here. So please visit our podcast website at energythinks.com podcast and tell us. You can subscribe to Energy Thinks on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, please help out by rating the podcast. Thanks for listening to Energy Thinks. Until next time, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, 